0: Second panel discussion, which is titled Mod- Moderate Islam Reality or Myth. It's a very interesting uh, title and very close to my heart. And I would love to listen everyone's uh, remarks.
1: I would like to formally open this panel okay. of uh, the uh, campaign Global Islamic Communist Jihad. Welcome, panelists, welcome, audience, to this great panel. The panel for now is Moderate Islam, Reality or Myth. Now, we live in times where we are confronted by increasingly frightening headlines telling us about massacres, showing us pictures of women who have acid thrown on their faces, women stoned to death, destruction of heritage, heavily-veiled women who have remained anonymous for ages with only a small window to look into the world. And we certainly see the Islamic State in the news a lot. Afghanistan, Syria, and India reported the highest number of terrorist attacks nationally in 2019. Overall, 2019 saw over 8,300 terrorist attacks worldwide and around 25,000 fatalities from terrorism. In 2020, Afghanistan ranked first on the Global Terrorism Index with a score as high as 9.59 making it the country that was most affected by terrorism on earth. However, we need to unpack the history and theology of Islam to understand the various nuances that need to go into the making of image of Islam as we have it
2: now and the image that is the correct picture of Islam. Thank you so much. I would like to say my namaskar to everybody uh, and uh, wish you a very happy Ganesh Utsav and uh, today's Rishi Panchami also. So, um, our Hindu dharm, you know, and our our Shastra have enjoined upon us the the duty of passing our, uh, you know, uh, paying certain debts. So it's like, it's a Rishi Rin which you pay when you uh, learn and when you spread that knowledge and carry that forward. So um, I'm very happy to be a part of this conference. Moreover, because uh, I would like to actually congratulate all of us that we are actually already talking about it. Something, the elephant in the room, which people or the world refuses to see. Also, I was just uh, reading some comments below uh, when the other speakers were giving their uh, you know um, talking about what what they felt their opinions a lot of people are asking you know uh, that they would want to hear certain things in Hindi, so I would try to especially more so because all such crimes are you know against the Hindus um say. Uh, happening largely in india bangladesh pakistan and yeah we are a hindi speaking uh, belt so they also need to know the real face and that is why i'm talking about a little bit of the history but i'll begin with um, where i come from so i uh, belong to this clan which is a ferociously a fearless clan of kokers, which was the first line of defense uh, against all the invaders like the whether it was Alexander, whether it was Ghazani, um Ebak, even uh, Temur. And uh, you'd be very happy to know that the people, the the ones who killed uh Ghori also were cookers 20 of them entered the camp, his uh, the war camp and entered his tent and killed him. There was this uh, Jasrat Khokar also, who uh, was a menace. He was uh, the biggest danger for the, you know, dangerous uh, Kafir enemy of Timur and uh, Mubarak Shah. So we also have mentions of them in uh, uh, Mubarak Shahi. Um, then even uh, Khusru writes about them that they were not annihilated and they were a constant troublemaker. This is. These are the stories that I heard as a child. I grew up with these stories. And my grandfather, they were the residents of uh, Rasool Jhelum, uh, which is in Pakistan now, District Jhelum, And uh, I grew up on the stories, those of the horror that they faced during the 1947. And these stories were mere representations of what millions of people. In in that belt, which is now Pakistan, faced of arson, loot, rape, murder, and we know it all. And the saddest part is that the uh, biggest mass migration, the biggest holocaust in the world history, um, actually finds no mention in the history books. One and two, it was uh, it did not happen overnight. It uh, was the outcome of a long uh, conspiracy of over a thousand years. The worst part is that the Muslims still date, you know, they actually exist in those same tribal times and they still has, hallucinate eliminating the kafirs from the face of earth. So, Abhi, uh, Thora Thora, I will try that I should, you know, certain thing points I should put forth in Hindi. Um, and why do they do that? Why, why do they exist? You know, because we say when we say a moderate uh, Muslim or a soft or a, or a um, peace loving uh, community, the fact of the matter is that it is the book that commands him to wage an unending war on the world to establish this theocratic state or the global Islamic state, you know, which is a dream which was envisaged about 1400 years ago. So whether it was, you know, from the Ghazwai Badr till the present day Afghanistan, nothing has changed. They are absolutely clear about what they want. The SOP remains the same and they harbor the same dream, the same intention and the ruthless techniques also remain the same. We are absolutely aware of that. So uh, a little bit of their history. I, I agree, there are lots of books available. Lots of people have written uh, huge, enormous material over them, but somehow it is not reaching. Uh, you know, um, the uh, one and another thing is that most people or the youth today isn't very keen on reading. You know, their attention spans are very less, very short. So there has to be more material that has to come out, and everybody must be aware of it um it's the entire world it is not just india that is facing that so islam basically is a political cult, cult that is absolutely clear and this was established by a man who called himself the messenger and who forced upon his um, uh, tribe to uh, call him or accept him as a rasul. So this man usne, the first thing that he did was he uh, the first war that he waged was uh, called Gazwai Badr, which was on the 17th day of Ramzan, which is the uh, lunar calendar of the Jews. And this first war is called Gazwai Badr, and it is, uh, you know, he, he waged this, it was unprovoked, or it on his own cousin client, uh, cousin, uh, you know, the, the same uh, family, the same Quraysh clan, who were very wealthy, and also the custodians of Kaaba. So, this was the first war, and this man in eight years, that is 622 to 630, he waged about a uh, 64 uh, such ghazwas. So, why should the present day Muslims not emulate, or why should they not follow? because the book has over 100 verses to convince a Muslim to do so. I'll I'll just read a few. Uh, There's this verse 2.193, which says Allah made jihad a binding duty for Muslims, whereby they must keep fighting until Islam becomes the sole religion of the earth. Another one, which is 911, which says Allah has purchased the life of believers who must engage in jihad, and slay and be slain, you know, maro or maro, just to, uh, you know, and be constantly engaged in jihad. This is what your book says. Then Allah also commands all the Muslims to plunder the wealth of infidels in jihad. Hak hai, hai. You can take their wealth as sacred booty. Allah has in inherited you unseen lands. और वो लैंड्स जो आपने कभी नहीं देखे एंड द लैंड्स होम्स एंड मनी ऑफ द काफिल्स दिस इस वर्स 33.27 एंड uh, 8.41 सेस एंड आउट ऑफ द बूटी दैट यू एक्वायर जो आप लूट में से खट्टा करते हो उसका वन फिफ्थ शेयर जो है वो अल्लाह ने असाइन किया है टू द मेसेंजर यानी द प्रॉफिट हिमसेल्फ this is the most ideal example that all these uh, Muslims emulate till date and there is no two way about it. Jazia, Quran 20 uh, the verse to uh, 9.29 says Jazia shall be taken from the kafir you, jo, you know, the economic model that I'm talking about uh, should be taken with belittlement and humiliation. So Jazea dhimmi hai, Uh, He's supposed to um, uh, not come on a horse. He's supposed to walk. He's supposed to stand while the collector sits and the collector is supposed to slap him after he's received it and and so on and so forth. That is 9.29. Now, this also is absolutely clear. It is there in the history. It is there in their memoirs. That muslim rulers in india for example took about 50 to 75 percent jazia as you know produce uh, um, the, the share of the produce as jazia which was the land tax which was called courage and as recent as 1946 also in Noakhali, when they converted about 95 percent of the uh, hindu population they uh, took jazia from them in 1920 they actually the, uh, during the Mofla riots, there was this man called Kunja Ahmad Haji who created a Sharia control state uh, in the region of Kerala, and he also extracted jazia from uh, the people. Or he also sold the Hindu women to Arabs. Now, what, what if this these are the examples that we have? What is halal uh, economics? You know, that also happens to be. Uh, in my opinion the same absolutely same just the uh, you know the modus operandi remains the same the face of it changes now uh also the book will be clearly state cardia the prophet kept most beautiful women for himself jo loot may say booty may say or joe bakithi he would unko would distribute kardete to uh his uh you know the radars or Kisiko, jo or Bashtiti, they would sell them for horses, for weapons, and all. So I will just read a couple of those also from his uh, uh, first biographer, Ibn Ishaq Tariq Tehri. He says, spoils of battle, including women and children, were divided among the Muslims as a part of his share. And he says, as a part of his share, a postal selected Raina as part of his beauty. Though so he would also select. Uh, the most beautiful women. And uh, again, he says, Apostle sent Saad bin Ziyad al-Sari to Najad with women of Banu Qurazia, taken as captive after slaughtering their men in the market of Medina and sold them for horses and weapons. So women were also sold for, uh, you know, they were also uh, a tool for generating money this never ending war that they have imposed on the world you know the barbaric regressive cult so they what i feel or whatever i have understood whatever i have read and studied there is you know no moderate soft or uh, whatever muslim or peaceful muslim a muslim is a muslim because he must live within the framework of islam and if he doesn't he's a kafir so he must abide by sharia simple words the sharia is the law of allah he has to follow the book or usko sunnah the osko jo a prophet prophet ke deeds ko emulate karna he has to ape he's supposed to ape and copy whatever the prophet did that is why uh, and that is sharia follow nahi karta he's no more a muslim moderate or peaceful or whatever so couple of uh, quotes from that 24.42, uh, 34.1. Okay. 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 kitab Okay. Have heaven, earth and all on it belongs to Allah. Then 6.165 says Allah made Muslims inheritors of the earth. And 2.55 says he has promised Muslims to make them rulers of the earth. When the book is saying that which moderate muslim or a so-called peaceful muslim would deny this and if at all he says that it is misinterpretation so let let him only explain it to us what what do these verses mean let him come forward and say no this is not meant uh, this is not supposed to be this and let him defy it let him stand up against it okay so he's not a muslim anymore if he does that so people now another example: people of all faiths uh, had uh, would worship in the pagan shrine called Kaaba. So we also have his uh, biographer Ibn Ishaq. Uh, he dedicated uh, pages and is described how that was broken, how uh, the prophet himself, usne kaise sare idols mein jo 360, usne kaise tode, how they were broken, how they were burnt or his son-in-law Ali stood on his shoulders to tear off the idol of uh, their God called Hubal. So this also is absolutely uh, clear in the book also by uh, the, there are plenty of, uh, you know, verses which have explained that too. Now, if I was to ask, if that is what he did, he first, he broke that and he created the first mask, which moderate? muslim or which educated muslim has ever objected to the breaking of anybody's uh, place of worship whether it was our adityastan in multan in uh, when the when sind and multan fell whether it was ramjan bhoomi the babri uh, you know uh, dispute whether it is kashi vishwanath whether it is the bamiya buddha who has stood up against it this is wrong who has condemned it so again I'm t- just trying to shatter or break in the whatever little given time that I have all the um, you know with, with facts and figures all the impressions or all the ideas that you have of a moderate or a uh, you know educated Muslim there are n number of educated Muslims today we know that very clearly who are terrorists yeah so Huge population also of the Muslims, which who are, I'm really sorry to say that, unfortunately, are a parasite on the progressive societies and they are not educated and they're not, they don't even wish to get educated, why? Because the book says so. Another quote, the book says, uh, the uh, Quran 7.157 says, follow the prophet who can neither read or write. Then you have, uh 8.175 uh, and 176 26 and 224 which says uh, sorry bukhari 8.175 and 2176 poetry and music is haram 26 uh and 224 art music poetry architecture science luxury etc are categorically prohibited 43.33 to 35 6.32 who and uh, another one, which is Bukhari 7.49 says, who thinks that musical instruments are lawful, whoever believe among them, that the musical instruments are lawful, will be destroyed and transformed into pigs and apes. So can you believe it that this um, uh, you know there is racial superiority for example the turks who consider themselves blue-blooded and who consider all the converts to be of low blood and i will just read a little paragraph on um how even they decided that the muslims in india when they were here uh ziauddin uh, barani in tariq feroz writes that teachers of all kind are sternly ordered to teach nothing to the low-born dogs Says, to, you ask anybody, an educated Muslim, an uneducated Muslim, he will tell you, uh, Namas, Rosa, and Hajj. So, exactly this is what is written there. He says, Don't teach anything to these low-born dogs. Nothing more than the rules of Namas, Rosa, and Hajj were to be taught. And he says, Unko important chapters of Quran Panna Sikhao or in because these low born dogs are capable of all vices they are worthless and they are shameless and they are dirty of blood we can clearly see that the Turks till date staunchly are uh, believe in racial superiority and now uh, let's talk a little bit about the peaceful versus the radical um There are n number of examples I have spoken on your, uh, you know, uh, I think for four hours, we talked about Sufis and what they did Uh, in short here. uh, Who are Sufis? The scholars, the Muslim scholars and the Muslim historians themselves say that Prophet himself was the first Sufi. Okay, one. Ali was, uh, you know, uh, the second and who was the uh, head or the leader of uh, what you know, uh, what do you say the Sufis? Yeah, so it is absolutely clear that the Sufis participated in all the nitty gritties of governance, they took share of loot of, uh, you know, and they accepted uh, booty, they took share of booty, they accepted women as gifts. And till date, they play important role in power struggle. We are absolutely, we we absolutely know that very, very well. I will just, you know, I will want to uh, share a few things here with you about that. Uh, that most of these Sufis had come to India also along with all the raiding armies. And who, who are these people since, um, you know after the initial wars when they would be actually sitting idle when the wars weren't happening so much after the first initial gazwas led by the prophet um, they would be actually just hanging around uh laying waiting laying in wait for you know around the front lines of bharat for uh you know another next war etc and So uh, that is the time they also met uh, wandering sadhus and they learned a lot of, they had a lot of interactions with them. They learned a lot of things from them. They learned, you know, breathing exercises. Some of them copied the calendars, copied some of the, uh, you know, uh, comfort yogis. And so there's a lot of huge data about that as well. But in short, I would just like to tell you how these people converted Hindus when they came to India. So Baba Farid converted Hindus in southern Punjab, which is now in Pakistan, Banal Haq, उन्होंने uh, convert किया Western Plains के Hindus ko. Uh, Gezu Gazeudaraz the uh, Weavers of Bombay Presidency ko convert the uh, Maabari kandayat ने Deccan के Jains ko Shah Jalal ने uh, You know Shah Jalal and uh, Jalaluddin Tabrizi, उसने East Bengal ke Hindus ko convert kea. Then how the they were a part of uh, the you know the wars or the invasions. I Mahahanuddinn mean, yeah. uh, invited the il Thutmish to invade India. Um Ajmer Sufisniku Gazni uh, Mohammed Gaznikya and he took a promise from them. Ki uska naam always mein padha on the Friday Kutba, he will come and invade India. So MS Rindine declared Islam and Darul Harb both at war and to become an uh, to be made an Islamic uh, state. And he was the first one who had actually emphasized on Jaziah. Um, Shavali Ulane, Abdali Ko invite Kya, Uske Betene, Barelvi Ko Banaya, or Barelvi, you know, uh, he appointed Barelvi, Barelvine about 80,000 jihadis, mind you, in the 19th century, 18th century. Agar azar the, what would happen? What would be the numbers be with the kind of rate that they multiply in? Dr. Elst is an endologist and one of the few
1: Westerners to actively defend Hinduism. A soft spoken man. Dr. Elst is known for his blunt and objective views. He has authored 30 books and was a foreign desk press editor, a foreign policy assistant in the Belgian state, in the Belgian Senate, and a visiting professor at two Indian universities. Welcome, Dr. Ernst. Uh, Dr. Elst, one hears a lot about the different kinds of Islam. How many kinds of Islam are there, and which are the correct ones? And- uh,
3: well- Yes, it's a very good question. How many kinds of Islam are there? Well, you see, you have a superficial division in several tendencies like uh, Shi'ism and Sunnism. But uh, ultimately, there's only one Islam. And so there are differences about uh, dots and commas. But the belief that Muhammad was the prophet, that the Quran is the word of God, that is common to them all. And so, as um, the Turkish president uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan has said, there is only one Islam. It is an insult. It is, a, it is a, an insulting imposition of Western values to uh, pretend that there are different kinds of Islam and that one kind of Islam should be promoted over other kinds. So there really is only one Islam of course uh, there are people whose behavior whose writings um, give occasion to characterizations like extremist and moderate that is true but if you look more closely those are not different kinds of islam there is an important analytical difference and it's very important to uh, insist on this difference in order to understand the question correctly. Namely, the difference is not between extremist and moderate Muslims. No, it is between a strict interpretation of Islam and a weak version of Islam, where Islam is is espoused in name, where lip service is paid to Islam, but in fact, many non-Islamic values are brought in. You see, uh, why are people, uh, for example, why are people enthusiastic about music? You see, as the earlier speaker correctly said, uh, music is not Islamic. You now, just just recently, the Taliban in in Afghanistan have again uh, murdered or otherwise terrorize several musicians. And so uh, music is un Islamic, uh, because the Prophet couldn't stand music, this probably had to do with his own neurological disorder, that explains the hallucinations, which he interpreted as hearing the voice of God. Now, of course, that's that's, that's a deduction that we can make from Islamic scripture. None of us was present there, so this is a hypothesis. But at any rate, the Prophet disapproved of music. And so, because Islam consists essentially in imitation of the Prophet, therefore the Taliban or the Ayatollahs in Iran, all serious Muslims disapprove of music music is intrinsically un-islamic now what to do with all these moderates who do practice music and you even have specific types of of islamic music or sufi music like kawali like sema and um, uh, so they are forms of compromise between Islam and normal human nature is naturally inclined to music, to enjoy music, to make music. And so some people born in a Muslim background still have that normal human tendency to music. So those people may under social pressure pay lots of emphatic lip service to Islam, But what they are actually doing is un-Islamic and remains un-Islamic. And so if I say music is un-Islamic, then of course some soft brain will come in between and say, oh, but I have a neighbor and he's a great singer and he's a fervent Muslim. Well, you see, he misunderstands. Okay, on the one hand, he may call himself a Muslim. On the other hand, to the extent that he enjoys music, He's not a Muslim, he's just a human being. So that distinction should always be carefully made. You see, this behavior, like, for instance, music, like tolerance of other religions, for example, which indeed you do find among many Indian Muslims. You see, they can perfectly tolerate having a giant neighbor or a Sikh neighbor or whatever. Um, that is just a human tendency that's not islamic and indeed in islam you have always movements to promote real islam to fight these these soft these humanistic tendencies like um in is in in india you have the tabli movement you see as you may remember uh, among hindus there was the uh, reform movement Arya samaj which was very active in what it called shuddhi or purification, which meant a reconversion of converts to Islam back to Hinduism. Right? So and this was possible because many Muslims were only very superficially Islamized and had retained many of the Hindu customs of their ancestors. And therefore, for them, it was not a big step to reconvert to Hinduism. So in order to combat this tendency, Muslims said, well, you see, we have to Islamize the Muslims. We have to make the the nominal Muslims, the Muslims in name only, more conscious of real Islam. You see, we have to to, uh, not drown them, but immerse them in real Islam and make them real intolerant Muslims. So that's the tabligh movement. Yeah, a recent uh, leader that was a uh, Maulana Wahiduddin Khan, whom I regret to say, was very fated by Hindu twa leaders. You see, thinking that oh, if they could humor him and appease him, he would bring lots of Muslims not into Hinduism, but at least into some 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 arrangement with the Hindu movement. Um, so that that's that's often. You see this idea that uh, soft-brained Hindus have that if you are only nice enough to Muslims, then they will be nice to you. And so that's, uh, that's only true if you deal with Muslims who are not really Muslims, who have not really been immersed in Islam. But so real Islam is intolerant. It's intolerant to music, uh, is intolerant to gestures towards the kafirs, the unbelievers and so on there is only one uh, real islam now you can compare the role of real islam in the life of ordinary muslims to um, a box that is being passed on in a family from generation to generation this box contains a poison now the first generation like let's say the first converts who only convert under duress, under social pressure, or even under physical uh, force. Um, they simply convert to Islam without actually believing it. Then their children go to the madrasas and so on, and so after a few generations they're fully Muslim, they have completely forgotten about their non-Muslim origins, but you see they're not really fanatical yet. But you see this box, which is Islamic doctrine, is passed on from generation to generation. Then one day, some, you know, usually a teenage uh, boy uh, gets enthusiastic. You know, he he gets religion and he opens the box and he sees what Islam really stands for. And he becomes enthusiastic for this real Islam. And so then he joins the Taliban or Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab. Or the Islamic State, and then you get real Islam in action. Then you get terrorism and so on. Um, So, this is not to say that there are no moderate Muslims, only they are only moderate because they're to the extent that they're not Muslims. But you see, in human nature, all these strange combinations exist. So, among Muslims, too. Uh, So, theologically, there is really no problem. Islam is Islam. And it's a very straightforward subject. You see, I myself have essentially lost interest in Islam, maybe 20 years ago, simply because it's such a simple topic. You see, after a fairly short while, you have simply understood. And by the way, I am very fortunate, you know, to see many young people, like the the, the, the former speaker who have delved into the subject of Islam and who are now um, now uh, translating this, this information about Islam for the present generation. So the, the information about Islam is available, remains available, becomes ever better available. There are websites specialized in discussing the different problems with Islam. But so ultimately, I, for myself, have decided, well, essentially, everything about Islam has been said. Um, Now we merely have to see what policies follow from this. And so that is more a human problem. You see, um, you know, how do you tell Muslims this? I mean, you shouldn't throw them all into the Indian Ocean, of course, I don't think anybody in his right mind is saying that Uh, but what should you do you see should you prohibit islam from being taught in school for example you see that's again a very far-reaching step to take and some people do advocate that uh, should you rather as i tend to say uh, emphasize scientific education teaching the scientific temper not only, you know, devoted to to ridiculous superstitions but really to to the hot issues like Islam and show the contrast uh, between what Muslims believe and what may really have happened. You see, Muhammad did not hear the voice of God. There is nothing in the Quran that shows it to be a prophetic book dictated by some supernatural being. No, it's entirely the uh, product of a seventh century Arab businessman. There is absolutely nothing in the Quran that goes against this. So you see, this should widely be taught. So the policy of appeasement of Islam, that is what should stop. If you treat them as normal human beings and if you treat Islam as one of the very many doctrines that human beings have thought up then already the most fundamental step uh, has been made so otherwise you see of course islamic terrorism islamic riots create certain practical problems for that you have a security apparatus and so let them do their work that's not my job but the ideological job has far more importance long term you see if you do like like for instance the americans after 9 11 you know you deploy lots of military power well that that has a short term result. can't deny that it has had some results, like initially they beat back the Taliban in Afghanistan initially, but then they did nothing of the necessary ideological work, not as propaganda among Muslims, but especially not in their own decision centers and so All the successive American presidents and their entourage, they have consistently cultivated misinformation about Islam. Always saying, oh, Islam is a great religion, but the Muslims are great fools, the Muslims have misunderstood the Prophet, and so on. That's all nonsense. You see, if they misunderstand the Prophet, well, that's a good thing. You see, if they take the Prophet seriously and follow his example, Just like the the Prophet destroyed all the statues in the Kaaba when he transformed this pagan place of pilgrimage into an Islamic place of pilgrimage. That way, all the Muslim conquerors, Aurangzeb and so on, Mahmud Ghaznavi and so on, they have destroyed Hindu temples. Or the Taliban have destroyed the Buddhas of Bamiyan and so on. That's because they take the example of the Prophet serious. So that's the real problem if policymakers in America, or indeed in India, had understood that, they would have made big strides towards solving the problem. That unfortunately has not happened, but that's what uh, what I keep working on. Right. Uh, so essentially, uh, to, to quickly answer your question, there are moderates within the Muslim world, but that is to the extent that they are not um not muslims Uh, you can well yeah one final comparison the effect of alcohol on people particularly on driving you see some people they can drink themselves totally drunk and then take their car and drive home safely somehow they know how to pull it off other people by contrast they may have drunk very little or they may have drunk nothing at all no matter what you do they are a danger under that's very well said but between these two extremes for most people obviously alcohol has a negative effect on your driving capacity so similarly the islamic doctrine has a negative a fanaticizing Effect uh, on your attitude towards other human beings. So thanks for your attention.
1: Uh, thank you, Dr. Rensk, for this wonderful exposition. I really liked your take on the Arya Samad movement, the tablighis, and the, what you said was simply convert, people simply converted without believing in Islam. I really liked your take on that. Uh, I would now like to invite Dr. Bill Warner to the panel and uh, I would like to introduce him before that. Dr. Bill Warner is an expert on political Islam, an international speaker, an author of nearly 30 books and courses and a blogger. Dr. Warner founded the Center for Study of Political Islam and Center for Study of Political Islam International to further explore and educate about the Islamic ideologies and its ramifications for the Western civilization. Dr. Warner, uh, I would like to begin by asking you, what motivated you to establish CSPI and CSPII and what is political Islam?
4: When I saw the second plane hit the second tower on September 11th, 2001. I knew that I lived in a nation that didn't know a Hindu, from a Sikh, from a Buddhist, from anything else. And I also realized that this would be an ideological war. I had, when on September 11th, my phone began to ring from different friends calling me and saying, you said there was going to be a big hit, how did you know that? I said, well, I read their playbook because I'd started reading about Islam and when I was a college professor and had many Muslim students. So I'd already read the Quran, then I read Muhammad's life. So when Osama bin Laden called America to Islam, I knew that we were going to get whacked. And indeed, it was a classic. He attacked a financial center in the morning in a surprise attack, just as Muhammad preferred, after he had called them to Islam. So I made it my purpose to make the doctrine of Islam easy to read. When I say the doctrine of Islam, I mean the Quran, the seerah, the life of Muhammad, and the hadith, his traditions. I want to make all of these a source so that everyone could become their own expert. The only expert I refer to is Dr. Allah and Professor Muhammad. And that's what I teach my students. I don't teach them about experts, I teach them what Muhammad said and did and what the Quran says. I produced a Quran that's readable. So therefore, my students can discuss Islam and basics and on the basis of not what a Muslim says, particularly a moderate Muslim. They can do it on the basis of what they find in the doctrine under the point of view about what is political Islam. I read religious literature all my life. I was raised a, a Christian, and by the time I was 16 years old, I was teaching the adult Bible class. I've studied the Torah. I've studied some Hindu scriptures. I've studied uh, Zen Buddhism. So religion is very important to me. It is, although I do not now have a religion, I think it is a good thing because it teaches morals and brings a unity to a nation if done right. So the thing that struck me when I read the Islamic doctrine for the first time was how much of it was about me and you, not about how to be a Muslim. When you read a Buddhist sutra, it becomes a doctrine that is concerned with being a better Buddhist. But over half, 51% of the Quran, Sirah Hadith text is voted to the Kafir. As a matter of fact, the word kafir is so important, I went through and counted up how many times it is used. It's used 345 times in the Quran to designate an unbeliever. So I'm a kafir and you're a kafir. I call that part of Islam that deals with the kafir political Islam. Why do I call it political? Because it is definitely not religious. Let me give you an example between the difference between political Islam and religious Islam. In America now, it's quite common, not in America, but in Europe, it's quite common for Muslims to commandeer the street and do Friday prayers. And some people say, well, they need to do that because their God commands them to pray on Friday. The prayer is Islamic, is religious. Commandeering the street and shutting down the traffic is a political act. So we need to see that there's a political part of Islam that affects us. I could care less about the religion of Islam. I don't care if they get 72 virgins or whatever else. I simply have no care about their religion whatsoever at all, other than to say it's not attractive to me. So what's important about Islam is what it says about you and me. I'd like to add something here about what's important about what we're doing now. We are the five percent talking to ourselves who are the other, who are a member of the five percent, what I call the five percent One of the things that's happened in 20 years since 9-11 is that many people now know the doctrine of Islam. But I find this, the higher you go, the less they know. I literally created this rule because of talking with a general one time about political Islam. He knew absolutely nothing and didn't want to talk about it. But I found that if you talk with soldiers who had been in Iraq or Afghanistan, that they knew more about Islam than the generals did. So the only we're involved in an ideological war. The only way we're going to win is to convince our leadership the 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 true nature of Islam, which everyone on this panel knows about. So, what we have to do is we have to democratize our information so that everyone knows it. I, for instance, am all for Islam being taught in the schools. And when I say Islam, I mean teach them who Muhammad was, teach them what's in the Quran, because I found that once people—and by the way, I know a Christian who has converted. 2,400 Muslims to Christianity. How does he do it? He has a two hour method he uses in which he gets Muslims to educate themselves as to what's in the Quran and who Muhammad was. He does this in a very slow method using asking of questions. This is ideological war. Now, most people don't want to know how to convert anybody. So he's been ineffective other than having personal success. But what I'm saying here is, is that most Muslims know nothing about Islam and the best way to de-radicalize them, a poor term indeed, is to teach them exactly what is in the Quran. It is my experience that jihadis know the Quran very well, jihadis understand the doctrine very well. So we need to take the knowledge that we have and make it available to all, and when I say all, in particular our leaders. This is going to be difficult to do because in the United States, people such as myself are called racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobes. So people don't want to hear me. If I tried to speak on a college campus here in the United States, there would be a there would be, if not a riot, at least protest. The United States is slowly giving up on critical thought, which is a tragedy because the cornerstone of our civilization is what I call the golden rule treating others as you would be treated. And our intellectual cornerstone is critical thought. We're giving up on critical thought. Now, Muslims' civilization is based on a dualistic ethical principle. That is, you treat a, another Muslim as a brother, but there are 13 verses in the Quran which say that a Muslim is never the brother to, a, never a brother or a f- true friend of a Kafir. So that's the nature of Islam, and we need to understand that. So what we have here is a lot of knowledge. We now can. Uh, Dr. Mano? M- uh, yes.
1: Uh, I would like to ask you a question, which only I think you can answer very, very well. And uh, it is this, that uh, a non-Muslim is staying on the outside of Islam and looking in. How does one arrive at an appropriate lexicon or a terminology to define Islam?
4: Very important question. Very important question. Aristotle, one of the great reason, one of the great philosophers of the West, taught that naming was one of the most powerful things you could do. For instance, we use the word terrorism. It's not terrorism, it's jihad. We shouldn't use the word terrorism because what's the difference? I could be a terrorist, but if you're a jihadist, you have an entire doctrine behind you. So therefore, it's an ideological war and we need to deal with those who know Islam best and they happen to be the jihadis. We need to explain to all people what the nature of Islam is and what and for instance, another thing we don't want to do is use modern Islam or radical Islam. You may think of cutting off people's head, heads is radical, or flying planes in the building is radical. But it is not radical, it is normative. There are two kinds of Muslims, basically. The, when you read, when you break the Quran down into its early form Mecca, and then the latter form Medina, you discover that in Mecca, there was no jihad. there was only argumentation. And in Medina, 24% of the Quran and written of the Quran written in Medina is about jihad. So here we see two important things. Number one, there's a dualism. Islam always has two opinions about any subject, and people want to argue, well, which one is the right one? I say no. It, do, it is a principle called dualism. That is, both the Meccan Quran is true, and so is the Medinan Quran true, but they contradict each other. You say that is the nature of Islam. People have tried to resolve the contradiction, and what I've done as a scientist is simply to incorporate it in and call it dualism. They're both equally true, except the latter one is stronger than the first one.
1: Dr. Werner, thank you so much for this wonderful addition to our knowledge of Islam today. And uh, I would like to say that what you said is very, very true, that the prayer is religion, but commandeering the street is political. From here on, I would like to invite Sandeep Sandeep Sandeepji, most of us are aware that nearly half a million girls and women were subjected to grooming by men of Pakistani origin in the United Kingdom, in places like Huddersfield, Rotherham, and even Oxford. Uh, And it generated quite a furore amongst the public because the review report that was finally released said that the ethnicity And this kind of offence could not be connected. So, in spite of tons of data, we could not pinpoint the nature of this violence and sexual and religious grooming. Can you draw parallels with conditions that are in India?
0: What is today known as you know grooming gangs? uh, You know, it's nothing new. It's just a new term for a very very old uh, phenomenon that is uh, you know as old as Islam itself. There are two things basically, uh, which you know. Islam in its operation, in its real world operation, you know, physical operation, holds, which is also sanctified by scripture, because it's only Islam that uh, in Islam that there's no real difference between theory and practice. Muhammad showed it through practice, and then you know that Quran came about; uh, it was codified in the Quran, just to simplify very, very uh, you know, compressed form. So, from that perspective, it all goes back to this uh, uh, what uh, you know uh, what is also sanctioned by the islamic doctrine of regarding kafir land because the entire earth belongs to allah and the non conquered part of the earth you know they they still haven't seen light and wisdom that only uh, you know islam can bring which allah can bring through the uh, message of uh, uh, the so called prophet is that Two things are primary, which is, I mean, enough history has, uh, 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 there's enough historical records on that is that land and women are prized in Islam. That is, non Muslim lands and non Muslim women. Somebody was mentioning about, uh, uh, you know, reading out from the Quran about, you know, how uh, women were treated as booty, then sold as slaves, and then just to multiply the fold and all that so grooming because today you know the nature of warfare and the nature of uh, uh, politics itself has dramatically changed from e- even last 150 years the world i mean somebody in the mid 19th century if he or she were to come and live in today's world it, he would find it unrecognizable it is i mean it has changed very dramatically so you are talking about a few 100 years at least 1000 years is that the warfare the methods and uh, you know the scripture remains the same except that the uh, vocabulary has changed that you can uh, you know pakistan or uh, any of these gulf countries they can't you know physically take up an army and go out and invade you know do a jihad and conquer spain or belgium or india or something like that it's no longer possible so what has happened is that what is the best next best route right so what is known as grooming gangs is this right that you know you usurp kafir land and kafir women now all traditional societies for example traditional christian societies i don't think they don't exist any longer am, i'm subject to correction you know in the sense that uh, which was there in medieval europe or pre medieval europe it doesn't exist anymore so which is the only last remnant remaining you know traditional society in some form or other it is a hindu society so let's look at you know the european or uh, the western uh, societies which have you know largely discarded any notion of christianity or any notion of religion uh, both in their uh, politics and in their uh, the way their society actually functions the values they uh, believe in their lifestyles and everything so they are unable to come up with you know or or even study at any rate or the notion that you know these these grooming gangs there is a scriptural reason they do this that you know it is drilled into them what what in india we call you know uh, the west calls it uh, grooming gangs here we call it love jihad so this is what i keep saying and i've written fairly uh, you know on multiple occasions that for the longest time india is the only country which has actually shown the entire world how to deal with islam for a simple reason uh, you, know, until, uh, uh, you know, until you know, until uh, you know the arrival of Mr. Uh, Mohandas Gandhi, but that's a different topic. So we have shown the world how to actually deal with Islam in a very, very highly effective way. And uh, because uh, India is unfortunately the biggest victim and the last survivor of Islam, none of the ancient civilizations which first came into at the first contact with Islam they were wiped out. So, they don't have no, there are no living beings to actually tell their tale. We continue to do that. We have that. So, unfortunately, the West should be learning from, you know, taking lessons, studying Hindu history and, and especially the history of Islam in India and how we dealt with it. So these grooming gangs, you know, all these, uh, uh, you know, whatever is happening there in uh, across Europe, Germany, Rotterdam, uh, Netherlands, uh, uh, Britain, all that, you know, if a book like Londonistan could not wake up England, nothing else can wake up. So it is scripturally sanctified, but it has taken a different uh, form. And uh, I suppose, uh, you know, that in a way that uh, answers your question. And on, uh, you know, I can't, uh, you know, kind of resist uh, uh, giving this take, uh, just adding a small point to this, uh, this whole uh, thing about moderate Islam. Salman Rushdie's apology, more than 20 or 30 years after he he got the fatwa, his apology is the biggest counter to this whole myth of moderate Islam, as simple as that.
1: Can you elaborate on that, Salibji? That's a very interesting insight.
0: Yeah, well, for the longest time, Salman Bushti was regarded this as this icon of uh, 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 free speech and uh, free expression that he stood for the scientific temper and all that. I'm sure he does. I mean, I don't know much about it. I can't read his mind. But the point is that he was funded by the British taxpayer. For more than two decades, all because the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran put a fatwa on his head saying that, you know, I'm going to kill you. My boys are going to kill you. They're going to do a jihad on you for writing satanic verses. Okay. And then, same Salman Rushdie uh, also said, you know, beware of, he wrote a beautiful essay in those days, you know, when he still had that, uh, you know, whatever you call his uh, spirit, that, you know, beware of Muhammad. He actually be careful with Muhammad. If I'm not, uh, if my memory is right, he wrote a beautiful essay. Be it's available online. You can read it. From that to nearly 30 years later, he gave an apology to you know uh, the same clerics. Koimin is a cleric, basically the most bigoted kind of a person you'll ever find. So he said, I mean, he didn't obviously his apology was not directed at the cleric. But he worded it beautifully that you know you uh, because I wrote this book. You know it has caused needless uh, 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 controversy, and uh, you know I feel very sad and sorry for being responsible for it. This he's saying after thirty years of being under uh, you know police protection, funded by the taxpayer uh, taxpayers of England. So this is surrender. So if you say courage. Right? You have to be courageous enough to face death. Ultimately, that's what courage means. otherwise it's it's useless, right That no matter what uh, danger comes, I will stick to my principles. So there you that, that punctures your whole thing of moderate Islam, right. Look at it in whichever way. Salutary, that's a wonderful take
1: on uh, moderate Islam. And I would like to come back to you with another question after I have spoken to uh, Abhas Maldaya ji, our very dynamic next speaker.
2: Uh,
1: Abhas ji, welcome. Abhas ji is a self-professed ex-Marxist, practicing architect, urban designer, and author. He's a part of the design team of Namami Gangi project and has authored five books, two of which are yet to be published. His latest work is an ex-communist manifesto. Abbas uh, my uh, question to you is, uh, Dr. Ambedkar read political Islam very closely when he called out the Mokka riots for what they were. Can you tell us more on this? And why are we in denial of Mokka riots for what they were?
5: Uh, as far as Mr. Ambedkar is concerned and his opinion about the uh, thing called political Islam, I would say that uh, he had dissected uh, the subject very clinically and he had gone into the depth of it and what the problem was and what really becomes very interesting is that uh, there was a period when he was in fact considering to convert to Islam Uh, there was a period in his life but uh, after 1930s uh, from 1940s onwards when he came across um, uh, his detailed reading of the subject his ideas changed drastically and um, if uh, I look at the current liberal gang of India or the way they work and the way they are very fond of using the term Islamophobe, perhaps Ambedkar would be one of the tallest Islamophobe of the current time, even bigger than B. Savarkar. So uh, uh, when I was discussing the same subject with some other panelists on some news debate, I was told that you know it's not of any good cause to. Go to site Mr. Ambedkar or any percent or any particular people of that era because it's their opinion what they have written and they are not the facts. But uh, even if we keep them aside for a while, that if we keep aside that what Ambedkar said or what any percent said or what other people were saying about the whole episode of the Moplasm and whatever happened, uh, then also the facts are very uh, very, uh, very criminal in nature because the biggest problem is that uh, this event happened. Of course, it was a great act of uh, criminal character upon the Hindus. But the way it was buried under the carpet of uh, buttressed with the support of the secularism or whatever we may like to call it, it is one of the biggest crimes which has happened to the Hindus, uh, and there can be no denial that we saw one of the worst phases. I see that the way the academic has been crushed, uh, it is certainly a very bad phase for all of us. Now, if I just go back to, uh, if I start looking at the numbers that what happened and how the things were. So around 2,500 Hindus were slaughtered as per the records. These are the written records. And of course, the numbers would have been more. Around two th- 26,000 had fled down as refugees, around 2,500 uh, were forcibly converted. There were sexual assault on the female and hundreds of Hindu mandirs were destroyed completely. And uh, what is very interesting that uh, these all happened in the wake of the Khilafat movement. Khilafat movement was a movement uh, which is known as Khilafat, but actually it was a Khalifa movement. And uh, it was a movement. to safeguard the, uh, the caliphate of the Ottomans. And uh, uh, when the whole Turkey was uh, working very hard to throw up the caliphate, it was uh, somewhere down in the south, not even the north, which is closer to Turkey. The Muslims were mobilized and uh, they were said that you, you are gonna fight for the caliphate and um, uh, we will support you for the caliphate. And the Congress uh, went on to support under the leadership of Mahatma Gandhi. And um, uh, they were uh, in return supposed to support us for the non cooperation movement. So it was more like our national interest was bought uh, uh, at the cost of saving uh, religious ideologies, uh, principalities, which is lies in the caliphate. Now, the and what is a very, uh, uh, and uh, 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 when we further go into the reading of the works of Dr. Nambaker, he has given a very interesting point that. There was a case where it was said that why you guys are addressing Mahatma Gandhi as some kind of Mahatma, right? He, as per the Islamic doctrine or the Islamic ideas, he's not even supposed to be seen as Mahatma. So, in fact, the person who was, let's a, for, for a time being assumed that Mahatma Gandhi had certain great reason or something, he was doing something good. But in fact, Muslims were not even open to see him as his own kith and kin, like how uh, Ambedkar rightly said that. Uh, a uh, muslim cannot see a hindu as his own kid and, kin, and can't see india as his own motherland it comes uh, and if he's a true muslim uh, it's uh, all based on the idea of how good you are following the doctrine so certainly uh, uh, what mahatma Gandhi was doing was not even uh, keeping muslims very happy uh, well, to that great extent because they had to call him mahatma and many other things uh, but at the same time uh, what i would see that it was more of principle of of which they were trying to follow that the whole idea was to use the political islam to the greatest force and then ensure that the caliphate is enforced. now if um uh i go back a bit to the history of uh, uh, who the Moplas were so in uh, in the Malayali terms they were the guests of the people who had come across and perhaps they are the one of the oldest uh, the muslims who had come the southeast asia and um, Uh, Of course, uh, uh, we have certain documents which even speak about uh, how there was an interfaith marriage. You may call it stupidity or generosity or whatever. Uh, Certainly tolerance wouldn't be a right word. But yes, there there was an interfaith marriage and a lot of conversions also happened, which people often say there was a willful conversion and not more. And, but when the Europeans came into the picture, things started changing because the Europeans certainly had a very different game plan than the Hindus, because they, of course, uh, All the missions which were out they had certain different purpose whether you read Columbus or Vasco da Gama their purpose was definitely different which was coming from the European renaissance and something more was there on the plate and so for them the prosperity of the Moplas was not to be seen as how the Hindus had been seen Hindus had had helped them really grow their businesses and their business and there was a whole trade route between the Gulf and India where all these things were happening but uh, the Europeans started putting the cap. And uh, once the Europeans started putting the cap, the, the Hindus then came to support it. And uh, later on, after the Khilafat movement, the things got prepared. And uh, uh, initially, even uh, the Hindus uh, were also quite, uh, and there was a factor of, uh, definitely a factor of the operation. There was a factor of operation which they were talking about. But that also has got a different picture altogether. Uh, but, um, initially the hindus were supposed to uh, support in those rebellions, but uh, when the atrocities started happening like this whole uh, what you whatever you call non cooperation or or whatever was happening in the god's own land it was really bringing a lot of brutalities up upon the hindus and the if you just want to the, read the records it's uh, it's very disheartening because uh, of course, uh, uh, from the day I've been told that uh, uh, Mr. Ambedkar would be having uh, his own opinion or any person would be having an opinion, then I have started looking into what exactly those people have to say who face the atrocity. So uh, there, there's a very interesting letter which the Rani of Nilampur uh, wrote as a petition to the Lady Redeemed and it has been documented in the book of uh, Gopan and Nayar. And she gives a complete detail of uh, the atrocities, she says that. Uh, but it is uh, it is possible. Is it possible that your ladyship is not fully appraised of the horrors and atrocities perpetrated by the tendentious rebels of the many wells and tanks filled up with the mutilated, but often only half dead bodies of our nearest and dearest ones, who refuse to abandon their faith of our fathers, a pregnant woman cut to pieces and left on the roadsides and in the jungles with the unborn baby protruding from the mangled corpse of our innocent and helpless children. So, um, so, uh, And there are a lot more records. There are records from the newspaper. There there are documents put across by the RSMAs. So there's a proper documentation which really uh, support uh, the numbers which I spoke initially about, the mass conversions about. uh, And very recently, while I was talking about these things with one of my colleagues uh, at my workplace, and he told me a tale, and which I never found any records. He said that there was even incidences, and he says that uh, his ancestors had seen the, those atrocities. He's from Kerala, and he says that the, the people who were not ready to convert easily, they were put into the boiling water, and then the skin filled off. So, the atrocities which we see there definitely is coming from certain manual or the thing what they have, uh, what happened centuries ago. Now. If I deviate a bit and try to really decode the idea of Islam over here uh, then uh, I I never see that Islam is much of a religious idea at all so if I just go a bit into uh, understanding of Islam and uh, so Islam is relatively a very political in nature because uh, the recent discoveries or the facts which have come across are very stunning and it really shows us that Islam was definitely formed as an idea to uh, uh, go uh, more powerful than the existing Christian Empire, that was the Byzantine Empire. That is the reason why Dome of Rock was also built at a certain place where it was much more higher than the Christian place, and of course, uh, when the the, the Kaaba shifted from places to places, this again speaks of how political it was in nature. There was nothing called uh, any iota of spiritualism which existed there, and in fact, the creation of all the documents, whether it's hadith or, if, uh, like, if we talk about uh, Bin Qasim per se, because he's related to our, uh, our nation, it's told that he came and attacked uh, Sin in 712 A.D. But the first document, uh, or the uh, which speaks about uh, Bin casting appears in 895 A.D., which is happening around 180 years after uh, he's supposed to have the 70-year-old guy is supposed to have ravished the Sin. So. The, all these documents were being created under the Abbasids and um, of course it followed uh, thereon also and Tux did a lot of document creation. They happened to be like a war manual. The more the wars, the more the hadiths were created, more the documents under ideas like bin Qasim was created because Chachnama, the document which also talks about uh, bin Qasim, happened a lot more later. It was also commissioned uh, around 13th century The whole, and there's a whole narrative that. No, there was a chain of tales which existed and there were narrators which webbed the story, but we don't find any primary sources. So coming back to the relation with all those, what we all the things what we see today or what we saw in 1921, it really boils down to the idea that uh, uh, Islam was certainly formed with the idea of political dominance to throw up any ideas which seems like uh, it can come on par with it and that's how it draws its power so what we saw in Mopla or what we saw uh, what we have been seeing thereon, is certainly coming from the idea where by which it's it is sprouted and nothing more has changed in it
1: uh, thank you Abbasji, for this wonderful input and uh, my key takeaway from your uh, uh, viewpoint is that uh, islam is a lot more political than it's actually religious am i right in understanding that
5: yeah, absolutely. It is
1: highly okay. qualified. All okay. right. I will come back to you again with a question Avharsi. So in the meanwhile, I'll like to speak to Sandeep ji and Dr. Bonner. And I would like them both to give me their takes on who is a dhimmi and why do we have dhimmi's even in countries which have other types of constitutions, maybe codified, uncodified, unitary, federal, etc and which are not Sharia. So, why do we have dhimis in these countries also? Why do we have Islamic apologists? Sandeep ji, I would like to answer you this. Uh, I would like you to answer this first, and then I would like to uh, request uh, Dr. Warner to answer this question, please.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you, Rinko ji. So, you know, uh, the last part of the question is quite interesting uh, that, uh, you know, you describe dhimis or zimis as uh, Islamic apologists. But uh, how does Islam itself uh, define Zimis? For example, I'll take the, like I keep uh, repeating, right? India is, The world has to learn how to deal with Islam from India. Okay, India perhaps had the largest, you know, the most populous number of Zimis. There were so many Hindus that, you know, they simply couldn't convert. And even during peacetime, they simply could, they refused to convert. They would, uh, you know, uh, Hindus, Kafis, whatever, Dhimis, second class or third class citizens or third rate, actually their status was slightly higher than that of slaves. Hindu, the status of Hindus in a pure Islamic rule was slightly higher than that of a uh, uh, slave. Okay, and they were merely tolerated. Hindus refused to convert, but you know, uh, they were subjected to all kinds of indignities. You know, spitting into tax, Muslim tax characters, spitting into Hindus' mouths. And, uh, you know, the victim, poor victim, could not show his disgust. But he had to, you know, uh, meekly adopt uh, an expression of submissiveness and utter humiliation. So, this was all, I mean, enough number of uh, uh, historical accounts are there. And Muslims themselves have written this history with, they gloat about these things. So these were Zimis. In other words, second class, third class, almost slaves. But they were still Hindus. They they suffered, they paid their jaziya, they paid all kinds of taxes, they had their lands taken away from them. But uh, you know, they refused to convert so this is uh, one part of historically this is what is Zimis. and uh, even in the early part of you know uh, islam's expansion immediately within 40 years of muhammad's death, you know death people know i mean it's widely known syria all the way up to egypt all and and, and you know all the way up to spain i mean they kept uh, uh, expanding left and right even there you know jews and christians were called uh, Zimis. zimmi's So, this is Zimma or Zimmi, second class, third class, whatever, degrading kind of a non-Muslims who were treated like this. So, cut to the present uh, uh, time that, you know, the Zimmi's that you describe as Islamic apologists, they are anything but Zimmi's. Historically, at least in the context of uh, Hindu history and Islamic history of India, our Zimmi's were actually, you know, they. They had no other go. They did not let go of their ancestral dharma. They preferred to live and die and suffer as Hindus, no matter what these uh, sultans call them. You call me zimmi, you call me slave. It doesn't matter. I'm still a Hindu. Today, you know, the class of people that uh, you know you describe as uh, Islamic apologists, they have always existed, existed in all societies, and you know, and uh, more so. These are uh, you know. Uh, Fairly recent creations. This kind of Islamic Hindu Hindus who have become Islamic apologists, especially the worst kind of uh, uh, Islamic apologists here, are are those who you know the, uh, what is that called? You know they were they out Nawabify the uh, Nawabs themselves. I mean this has a fairly and the greatest representative of that in recent history was uh, Nawab Nehru or Jawaharlal Nehru. So he was an icon for all these Islamic apologists in India. Basically, Uh, so I mean, for whatever reasons—out of cowardice, out of ignorance, out of career prospects, money, whatever—these guys become, or, or you know, this kind of deranged uh, extreme leftism. Lots of things uh, make them, uh, uh, you know, brazen apologists for Islam. It's largely psychological, partly to do with career prospects, uh, several other factors. Everything other than self-respect and cultural ownership and cultural self-confidence.
1: Uh, yes, thank you Sandeepji. that was wonderful, the yes. way you differentiated between the two categories. Uh, Lakshmi the question is, uh, uh, who were the dhimis in the past? And do we have dhimis in the present? I would like to ask you that.
2: Um, well, uh, like Sandeep has explained it in totality, so I really do not need to uh, say much about it. But nevertheless. So um since he's already answered it. Uh but nevertheless the fact of the matter is whatever you may call us or whatever you whatever you know you may address us as, but the modern apologists cannot be called the maze simply because they are just ignorant of the fact, they're just ignorant of the of the truth of Islam, they are ignorant about you know it's like um there's a huge difference, you know. There is um uh, an ideology, or a or a thought process, or dharma that says you know uh, that considers the entire world as a family, as one family, and wishes you know good well for everybody. And there is this one book you know which you are supposed to follow. If I um, you know I'll follow my dharma, that is my Hindu dharma, whether I worship, whether I don't. I still remain a Hindu, right? But the one who doesn't follow the book is no more a Muslim. He's supposed to follow the book. He has to abide by the book. He has to emulate his, uh, you know, the, uh, the the prophet. And that is what Sharia is. And that is what, so unless and until they know the difference about uh, uh, between both the things, you know, both the, one is a dharm, which is following uh, the uh, cosmic law. And abiding by it. And one is just following fancies of a man who legalizes every act, every act of cruelty, every act of, uh, you know, uh, whether it is um, the barbarity, whether it is loot, whether, whether it is rape, whether it is murder, whether it is slavery, whatever. So, unless they know the difference. So, I do not feel or I do not think that uh, we should call them zimmies, we can just call them uh, people who are absolutely unaware of what the truth of Islam is. And that is what I try my level best at. So uh, maybe um, after you're done with uh, somebody else, I'd like to give you a few examples uh, from uh, the personal experiences or the things that I've learned from my family uh, from the 1947 uh, horrors, as well as what Quran has to say about women in, uh, in Sharia.
1: Mirashri ji, you can quickly tell us about that in about five to
2: six minutes or so, if that is enough time. Um, Well, uh, um, one, that my family comes from that uh, belt. Two, my aunts, two of my aunts who were just about 15 and 13 at that time, who had come to India at that time, I'm not getting into the stories of what they went through, what my families went through, both my father's family and my mother's family. But since they had come here and they were like, you know, serving every day, going to the camps, the refugee camps to serve the people with Red Cross people to attend to the wounded and all. And the kind of stories that they, uh, you know, talked about the kind of victims that came Uh, the women, how uh, brutally they were attacked, how their body parts were cut and how uh, they were treated. And both of these uh, aunts of mine, both the masses retired from, uh, you know, the topmost posts in one from the All India Institute of Medical Sciences in Delhi and one from the uh, Medical Sciences Hospital in uh, Meroli. So we have a lot of data from that. And this, uh, you know, man, the the man who creates this book or who creates this law, what the book says is that by the order of Allah, it is the order of Allah when he marries 13 wives, including the, you know, uh, um, the wife of uh, an adopted son, including the nine year old. So he is actually legalizing the, uh, you know, the lecherous behavior. He is legalizing the pedophilia. And there's another fact which most uh, people aren't aware of, you know, Aisha. People know of, but people aren't aware of the followers of Hassan and Hussein, who are the Shi'as. They, uh, these boys, the Hassan and Hussein, are the sons of the Persian uh, uh, princess who was captured at the age of three and who was gifted to Ali. So he actually, as as his concubine, when she was just three, so he actually followed the footsteps of his, um, uh, you know, his father-in-law. So you have chapters, uh, you know, uh, uh, t- verse twenty-four uh, in uh, Quran, which is chapter four and verse twenty-four, which talks of muta, which is the temporary marriages. So obviously everything is uh, legalized. Sunnis call it muta, but uh, Sunnis call it misar, and uh, the rest call it muta. You have. Examples of Zakir Nayeg, you know, he uh, known to have lured uh, women into this. The Hindu women, the poor, pure, poor Hindu women. You have sheikhs coming from UAE to Pakistan and uh, you know, uh, India for this Hyderabad. Then you have uh, you know, point uh, thirty uh, four, which says that the women are inferior. Uh, because the, Allah has made them so, He's given them advantage over women, and because they spend their money on her, because they, you know, have more knowledge, reason, authority, and um, as as low and as cheap as that, uh, Prophet himself says that the best wife is the one who, uh, you know, the moment you look at her, she 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 will please you, and uh, the book says that she will protect herself, her, you know, her. Uh, uh, you know her, um, um, her, her private parts, to uh, in in the absence of the man, and things like these, uh, very very demeaning things, and then you have this, you know, um, the whether they're rulers or whether it is uh, people till date actually following them. If you are aware of this, that the ninth uh, century, you know, there was this uh, Abdul Rahman who had six thousand concubines. You have Moulay Ismail of uh, Morocco who had four thousand in his Aaron, and he had twelve ch- hundred children out of them. You have, uh, you know, the uh, so-called great. Akbar, who had 5,000, Jangir had 5,000, Shah Jahan had 6,000, you know. The Ottoman Sultans had, till 1921, their harems full of women. You have, in 1954 also, you have the Nawab of Bawalpur Sindhu who, who has 4,000 of them. So this modern version of grooming, or whether you call it the, you know, uh, using takya for love jihad or whatever, it is absolutely, there's no difference in um, in the way a Muslim thinks today the whatever acts uh, he does, you know, and women, for that matter, cannot even uh, call their polygamous husbands as cheat, that is haram, anger, you know, you're expressing your anger on the polygamy is haram, marrying a non-Muslim is haram. So all this adds to the demographic changes in any part of the world and these you know, invaders also, following the their prophet, they captured lands, invad- they invaded, they enslaved You know, people. They made uh, them more bloodthirsty. Yeh bhi records mein that you, uh, when you capture someone, you actually make him more bloodthirsty. You bhi say, um, uh, 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 convert, is more of a Muslim than uh, the original Muslim, you know. So you have this huge example of this Janissary um, of the Ottoman Empire, which is uh, uh, via which they actually won uh, the Byzantine Empire, the Constantinople. They could they could capture it. So uh, they would, you know, uh, ca- um, capture about eight, ten year old uh, boys and uh, castrate them or. Or not castrate them, and they would actually train them to be fierce jihadis, and they used the people the people of a land to actually defeat the people of the same land, you know the natives of the same land, so this is what even Firosha Tuklak did you know in India, so he had about two lakh uh, slave boys, so there are many such examples you know it 's like an endless uh, discussion, but in my opinion uh, as to whatever I understood, whatever I learned also uh, since we are into hotel and we have a lot of uh, you know hotel industry we have a lot of people a lot of muslim especially in bombay a lot of women uh, coming to us every day for jobs you know and 99.9 percent of them of them are ed- uneducated they're they're young and divorced a mother of two at the age of 20 half of them uh, some 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 also burned physically assaulted so this is the kind of um, and whatever you may try, you know, it is very difficult till you take the book out of this. Is, is my opinion till you take the book out of a Muslim, he will remain a Muslim because that is what he's supposed to do, and that is what his book um, asks him to do to emulate or to follow the deeds, each and every act of the Prophet. If you believe him, then you are a Muslim, if you do not believe him, you are a kafir, you are in some just just another, somebody like us. So unless they're educated and brought out of that entire uh, uh, thing, it's it's an impossible situation. And I think um, this has to be, this has to go, the message has to go in public more and more, and the people have to be educated on what that book is, what that cult is, and what is it out to do to the world. Thank you. Thank you, Venakshi that was very insightful. And coming out from your own experiences
1: makes it all the more personal and very, very touching. Thank you so much. Uh, Abhas I uh, wanted to come back to you with another question here. Uh, we had spoken about the ability to voice and name categories of Islam. I want to uh, get your input on uh, how the left sees Islam. The doctrine of the left categorically instructs its students to allow freedom of expression freedom of religion and islam demands and demands till it subjugates and conquers now can you uh, draw just two parallels for this encroachment of political islam into the categories that exist in india very very briefly so uh
5: left which really exists right now uh, is completely based on doctrine of uh anti-majoritarianism, that is how they work. Wherever they will be, they will try to just dismantle the majoritarian idea. Because uh, left comes from a concept of a it's like an equation. That equation is that in that from that equation, if you remove that constant of uh, atrocity or the class class struggle, then that equation fails drastically. So for that equation to work, that class struggle needs to go on and on. So then when the class struggle needs to go on, on it depends on the classes which they are trying to make now when it comes to India or the subcontinent per se, or rather we should just focus on India right now it is the Hindus who are the majority of the people and by nature they have been whatever you may like to call them docile or someone who at least for certain centuries have not been that reactive to the situation that you know attitude has really carried on forward this is a truth and there is no denial to it I accept it completely and when this happens they will try to really bring down the Hindu ideas or the idea of which is the majoritarianism because they go back to the focus uh, their focus goes back to the cultural Marxism or uh, if you want to pick the deconstructivism of Derrida which uh, Derrida's works were more of uh, radical Marxism what we can say from which the postmodernism takes a lot of clues from so it's based on the idea of uh, that uh, the, the society is based on the customs traditions or created by the wealthy people it has nothing to do with any other essence than the wealthy people or the the majority of the people who really set the parameter so for the left to work and this uh, the class struggle to go on and on this majority needs to be brought down and in order to bring down the majority in india it's definitely hindus and like Ambedkar had categorized all the dharmic faiths of india under the hindu Cater, that time when he, uh, he put it across in the constitution. So uh, it uh, really affects all of them, whether it's the Buddhist, whether it's the Sikh, or each and everyone coming from the Indic faith. And then uh, they will get onto the propagandas like uh, uh, it was during the CAA, isn't it? That uh, it was said that Laila lai, lai, Muhammad Rasulallah is a very secular kind of notion. So that is how the political Islam. Was injected into the veins of already the people who I do consider that are Dhimmi, because my understanding of dhimmis is something very different. So <laughs> uh, uh, they were being, uh, they got carried away, and we saw a lot of tweets and a lot of articles and a lot of things which happened around it. So that was one of the case. Then again, you see a lot of opposition uh, to the whole fractions of Hindutva, which comes from the so called left. Now, if we just pick one of the pegs of this whole. Narrative, they say Andre Tuske. Now, the people are saying that uh, uh, they are trying to dismantle Hindutva. Fair enough. Like many say that Hindutva is all about the Hindu nationalism. Okay, take it away. Now, but they say that we are very happy with the Hinduism because Hinduism is something which is very pluralistic and it is a very pure form of religion and whatnot. They say it is good about it when it comes to the treats and the things. But in action, Andre Tusk goes on to write an article. Uh, saying that the situation of Nirvaya and many other uh, female in the society is as equivalent as of Draupadi. So what he did, she did here is that she not only demonized our Shastra, that is of the uh, Mahabharata and how the Shastra perceived uh, the the, uh, the female as, but she also showed that the Hindus by default are like that. So it is a truth that those people or who want to side by the left or want to be called as a left and not even standing by the Hinduism, but the whole idea is to dismantle this idea of Hindutva. Again, if I go a bit back to the Mopla situation, it was a Mopla situation of which had made Savarkar really dwell into the idea and come up with a new notion of Hindutva, which was far different than what Chandranath Basu had coined in 1892. Right? Many people, I am very surprised that all these academicians are not even aware that Hindutva was first coined in 1892, not by Savarkar savarkar just popularized in a different form so what it did it was in opposition to uh, the very strong political islam which was brewing back then so then they said that you know hindus need to be politically active and be united so and it went on and on the prophecies of savarkar kept on becoming truth and right now if you uh, remove this quotient of hindutva that is when this political islam will step in because the hindutva is a kind of barrier to them and uh, it, it really sets a case very right for, uh, uh, like, for example, we are right now, um, uh, Andre Tuske is talking extensively, uh, has been talking extensively about Aurangzeb. Now, she's a female. She talks about uh, the the, uh, the atrocity by Hindus upon the female, quoting our Shastras. But she is a fan girl of Aurangzeb, who, whose own Fadwai Alamgiri extensively talks about the sex slavery and whatnot. So even if you're a rational one, a true left one, like anti-religion of per se, then that is how you need to work on. But it's not about left or right too. They will turn into a rightist when needed. They will turn into a leftist when needed. But The whole idea is to bring down the majoritarian force which exists as a cultural safeguarder of a particular nation or a society. So this assault is um, uh, uh, this idea to go hand in hand with the Islam. It's in no sympathy to the Islam because the Muslims are most persecuted by the communists. You look at the Soviet, you look at China. So that's how the case is. So uh, we all are not living in a pool of paradise. Internet has, uh, uh, internet has really brought the things so open, open to us. A lot of texts are there. So we are completely aware of what is there on the ground.
1: True, true. true. That's very well said, Avarsji. And that kind of uh, uh, brings us to the summation of this panel also. And you've already summed it up for me the Islamist-feminist jihad, you have uh, done it so well for me. Thank you so much. So uh, we'll just wind up this panel, and I'd say just this bit that censoring ourselves to please the Islamists, the pro-Islamists, or the radical Islamists, or the moderate Islamists is an underhanded subversion of democracy, an attack on free speech, and jihad of the pen and the tongue which which operates through our own hands. And without free speech, you no longer have a republic or a democracy. What you have is only a tyranny. With this, I would like to wind up this panel. I would like to thank Dr. Koyra Dales, Dr. Bill Warner, Sri Sandeep Balakrishna, Sri Abhas Madhyaji, and Swishri Minakshi Sharanji. Thank you, organizers. Thank you so much. Namaskar. Jai Hind, Jai Bharat.